been an interesting couple of years here at church. Uh, it feels like we've changed quite a few things. Um, because we're trying to grow, and I'm really encouraged by lots of what is happening here. But for all the changes that we've made, some people have come and some people have gone. And I think at the moment, at least in terms of numbers, we're about the same as we were a couple of years ago. Uh, but being about the same size is actually better than most churches in Australia. Uh, the 2021 census, you probably can't read that very well, um, it made sobering reading. Uh, while the Australian population grew by 8.6% between 2016 and 2021, the number of people who described themselves as Christian dropped by 8%, from 52% to 44%. And uh, that, that blue line there is a steady decline in the number of people who identify as Christian since 1971, when 86% of Australia just describe themselves as Christians. Uh, and it finishes at 2021 at 44%. Uh, and while there's been a growth in independent churches and ethnic churches, the sad news is that every mainstream Christian denomination in Australia shrunk in numbers between 2016 and 2021. Uh, between, in five years, there were 605,000 fewer Anglicans, 216,000 fewer Catholics, and 112,000 fewer Presbyterian and Reformed Christians, or people who called themselves those categories. So uh, that table there, it's all negative. All of those, all of those bars are losses between 2016 and 2021. And down here are different denominations. Uh, churches are closing. Church buildings are being sold. Uh, for example, every year at our state assembly, we make decisions about what to do with assets that come when churches are closed and buildings are sold. Uh, it's enough to make us question, isn't it? What is God doing? Uh, are we just being disobedient? Are we not praying? Are we not trusting God? Is God growing his kingdom or not? In the midst, though, of our disappointment and maybe our impatience and our sadness, Jesus teaches us in verse 19 of our reading, have a look at it there, he teaches us about the kingdom of God. And he says, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. And in verse 21, it is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. In other words, how does the kingdom grow? The kingdom of God starts small, but it grows big, eventually. Seeds and yeast are tiny, and seedlings and bread dough both grow slowly. They take time, but in the end, they're huge. 
That's what it was like in Jesus' time. One man speaking about God in one small village at a time. But over time, what Jesus began has grown into millions of millions of people who love and obey him. And on a much smaller scale, God is doing the same thing here in our church. He's starting with something small and growing it big. God is building something that might seem small at the moment, but it will finish big. How else does the kingdom grow? God uses common, unimpressive instruments. Ordinary means, the Westminster Confession of Faith calls it. A seed is tiny. It's one of millions of seeds, but it's transformed into a tree that birds nest in. A teaspoon of yeast, it looks powerless, but it can transform large amounts of flour. God uses common, unimportant methods and instruments. Uh, The gospel message, the church, us. God uses us to build his kingdom. We don't need to be something else. We just need to get on with living as obedient, faithful followers of Jesus where he's put us, just who we are, who he's made us to be. How else does the kingdom grow? We can't make it grow. I think that's a lesson from these two parables. We can't make the kingdom grow. We can provide the conditions for the kingdom to grow, just like gardening or making bread, but we can't guarantee that a certain amount of effort will produce a certain result. Because God is the one who changes people. God calls them. God leads them to repentance and faith. God matures them. God grows the kingdom. Now that's, that's a wonderful encouragement. It's a wonderful comfort and motivation for us to keep working. It doesn't depend on us to grow his kingdom. How else does the kingdom grow? The growth is often hidden. Often you can't see the growth. We learn that lesson from these stories as well. Uh, You bury a seed in the ground. You can't see it. Uh, You mix the yeast into the dough. In fact, the Greek word for mixing in is actually encrypts. You encrypt the dough, uh, the yeast into the dough. The woman hides the yeast. Now, you, you can't always see what God is doing in people, in places. You can't always measure it. God grows faith and understanding in somebody, maturity, love, patience. We may not see any evidence of those things for a long time. One of the difficulties of pastoral ministry, my job, it's in common with lots of jobs, like teaching, when I used to be a teacher, but you often can't see the results for your work. Now, that can be a bit unsatisfying. You can get to the end of your week and you can't identify anything that you've produced. But that doesn't mean the kingdom of God isn't growing. Sometimes it's just growth that you can't measure, that you can't see. 
God is growing his kingdom in a way that's hidden. I'm always encouraged when I hear about these other sorts of growth, though, of people serving generously and cheerfully in new ways, doing things that they hadn't done before. That's growth. Or home groups that are growing in how much they love and care for each other in ways that they haven't done before. That's growth. Or people who have a new joy and excitement about what they're learning about God when their eyes just open up as they tell you. That's growth. Or people who have a new contentment or a new stability as they face struggles. That's growth. God is at work growing his kingdom slowly but surely, even if we can't measure it. How else does the kingdom grow? I don't think it's stretching this metaphor too much to say that kingdom growth produces people who are looked after and fed. Produces people who are looked after and fed. Now notice in verse 20 that the birds of the air come and nest in the branches of the tree. Uh, Jesus is echoing a promise that God made in Exodus chapter 17 uh, that he would bring his people back from exile. And he uses the image of a tree. And he says he will plant them back in the land and make them flourish. Verse 22 and 23 of Exodus 17, he says, I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar. So the cedar's planted in Babylon and it's the nation of Israel. I will take a shoot and I will plant it on the mountain heights of Israel. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it and they will find shelter in the shade of its branches. And so Jesus is borrowing that image and he's saying when the kingdom of God grows, people will be sheltered and nurtured and looked after. And also fed. I think that's the yeast and the flour. Our translation just says a large amount of flour. But if you're looking at a different translation, it might tell you the amount. It it actually is three satas. And probably you have a footnote in your Bible. What's a sata? No one knows what that is. But it's about 22 kilos. Uh, So three satas is about 22 kilos of flour. Do you know how much that is? A 20 kilo bag is quite heavy. It's hard to lift. That's about 50 kilos of bread by the time you add the water and the oil and the salt. That's a lot of bread. That's not home cooking, is it? That's a bread shop. There is an abundance of bread that a small amount of yeast will produce. When the kingdom is growing, people are being well fed. This is a lot of stuff. Being fed on God's word is the most important nourishment we need. Do you remember the, what the wise and faithful servant was doing last week? Last week, chapter 12, he was leading and feeding the other servants. Kingdom growth is about caring for and feeding God's people with God's word. So let's not give up on that. Well, verse 22 produces, uh, we, we get a, a change of scene, but not a change of theme. A change of scene, but not a change of theme. It's still about how the kingdom of God grows. In particular, how big will the kingdom be? 
A tiny seed grows into a big tree, a small amount of yeast produces a huge amount of bread. So does that mean lots of people will be saved? Or just a few? Who makes it into God's kingdom? That's the question. Verse 22, Jesus is travelling through the towns on his way to Jerusalem. He teaches the crowds and then he moves on to the next town. And and out of the crowd in the town, some of them will keep travelling to the next town. I think that's probably the situation that causes this question. Perhaps someone compares the, the number who are listening in the town with the number who are following on the road. Those who actually leave the towns and travel with Jesus. And, and so this person asks Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Out of all the people in the towns who are here, how many of them will make it into God's kingdom? But Jesus turns the question around. He's less interested in the theoretical total of those who make it And he's more interested in the real person standing right in front of him. Verse 24. You, you make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Notice he does answer the question. Many won't be able to enter. Sort of answers the question. Which makes... Uh, which means there is a very important conclusion, a logical next step. If, if many will try to get in and can't, then you need to make sure that you're one of the ones that does. Forget the question of how many make it in. Focus on you. Don't worry about others. You do you. <laughs> worry about you. Lots of people are trying to enter but only a few make it. And if you're going to be one of them, you have to strive for it. Make every effort. The Greek word is agonise. It's a word that's used in battle and an athletic contest. Strive. Every year, people who want to study medicine, uh, we've just had Joshua visit from England. He travelled all the way to England to study medicine. Uh, But every year, people who want to study medicine and become doctors have to sit an entrance exam in a huge hall at Sydney Showground. Thousands of people compete for a couple of hundred places. There's one exam a year. If you don't do well enough, you have to wait 12 more months. Lots of people do it, sometimes four or five times, to get in. It's very difficult just to be offered a place in a medicine course. Then you have to make it through about another 10 years or so by the time you do all of your exams. Uh, And you have to pass every year before you can become a doctor and fewer and fewer people make it through each door. So to make it to the very end, you have to be very committed. You have to strive. You have to really want it. Don't bother starting if you're only half committed. This is the picture Jesus is saying here. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many will try to enter and will not be able to. That's what it's like with the kingdom of God. 
salvation, coming to know God, being with God. It's entered through a narrow door. Lots of people trying to get in, but only a few succeed. For Jesus, there are crowds everywhere who are vaguely a little bit interested in, in the entertainment, the free lunch, the miracles, the political rebel leader, perhaps. But how many actually follow him? Who, how many actually trust Jesus? How many recognise, the, recognise God himself walking among them? and then turn their whole lives over to him. Not many. And it's no different today. People all over Sydney interested in Jesus, to some extent, say they believe in God, or they're spiritual in some sense. They have some understanding, some background knowledge about Jesus. But Jesus requires much more than a half-hearted commitment. Jesus, it's all or nothing. And so few make it in. What's far more important is to make sure that you're one of them. Not asking how many, make every effort. Be focused, totally committed. Forget everyone else, forget how many, you make every effort. So why is the door narrow? Why do only a few make it in? Well, over the next chapter and a bit, we'll see at least three or four reasons. But but this week, the first reason we're looking at, why is the door narrow? Because the last will be first. Because the last will be first. Those who think they're at the front of the queue are in for a shock. Look at how Jesus continues. Make every effort, because many will try to enter and will not be able to. Verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. He's talking to the Jews, God's special people. The ones God promised a saviour for, The door into the kingdom is open at the moment, but don't count on it being open forever. One day the chance will be gone, the owner of the house will get up and lock the door. Jesus is talking about himself. He's the owner of the house. You can see that from what he says next. When the door's shut, then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. Notice that's just what he's been doing as he walks through the cities teaching but he will reply I don't know you or where you come from away from me all you evildoers the people who hear Jesus thought they knew him because he walked through town he taught he stopped for a meal but that's not faith that's not entering God's kingdom they didn't back up support what they knew with lives of loyalty and commitment to Jesus. And so Jesus, the owner of the house, the keeper of the door, the judge, issues his verdict, I don't know you. Uh, 
And when that realisation hits people on, on Judgment Day, it'll be a time of despair because they missed out on something that they thought they already had. Verse 28, their forefathers, their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob will be there. They'll see them, but they won't be there. And instead of the Jews being there, people from all over the world will make it. Verse 29, that's us. That's great, isn't it? We'll be there if we're trusting Jesus. And verse 30, Jesus says, the last will be first. That's talking about us, our non-Jews. The Aussies and the Chinese and the Singaporeans and the Irish, those of us who trust Jesus who are last, will be first into God's kingdom. And the first will be last. That's the Jews. The ones who least expected it will who are furthest away from God's kingdom will be welcomed in. But those who cling to their own importance and privilege, who assume that they're in, but who refuse to believe, they'll miss out. The last will be first, but the first will be last. And then in the next section, verses 31 to 35, it it puts real faces onto those broad categories, last and first. There are real people in Jerusalem, God's city, where God's temple is, and they will be judged because they refuse to recognise God's son. They're first in line for God's kingdom, but they will be last. They'll be cast away from God. Jesus is on the road towards Jerusalem, Some people warn him not to go there because Herod wants to kill him. But verse 32 and 33, Jesus says he's committed to his mission. His mission will finish in Jerusalem. It'll finish with his death because that's what happens to prophets when they go to Jerusalem. They they get killed. People don't want to hear what God has to say. The history books... The books of the Old Testament describe the story of Jerusalem's attitude to God's prophets. Generation after generation refuse to listen to God's call to turn back to him. Real people who were first in line for God's kingdom but who miss out because they refuse to listen. And look at how it breaks uh, breaks Jesus' heart. Verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The owner of the house who shuts the door on people, he's not hostile, he's not aggressive, he doesn't love to do that. Jesus wants to gather all of the straying chicks under his wings and protect them and welcome them. But they insist on running away and it breaks his heart. 
You can hear the despair in Jesus' voice as he delivers judgment on Jerusalem. Your house is left to you desolate. The city will suffer until people recognise Jesus and welcome him. Jerusalem is still waiting. 2,000 years later, they're still not recognising Jesus. Because they didn't make every effort to enter through the narrow door. They didn't strive to know Jesus. It's the same for us today. Each one of us is to make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Make sure we know Jesus personally, really, truly. Make sure that we've accepted his offer of forgiveness for our sin. And that we're not trusting something else. We're not thinking that something else will put us at the front of the line. Because if that's our attitude, that's just like the Jewish people. We're in danger of missing out. Those who think they deserve to be first will be last. Don't trust your heritage. Presbyterian through and through. Don't trust that. Don't trust your church attendance. You never miss a week. Those things don't put you at the front of the line. Don't trust your family that you have your father and grandfather and great-grandfather were Christians. That doesn't put you at the front of the line. Don't trust your education. You know the Bible, the stories, the verses, the right answers. That, that doesn't put you at the front of the line. Don't trust your morals. There are so many other people doing bad things and you're much better than them, you think. Maybe it's true. But that doesn't put you at the front of the line either. Or your work ethic. Don't trust that. You always volunteer for things. You're always doing and working. That doesn't put you there either. Or your generosity. Always first to put your hand in your pocket doesn't put you at the front of the line. Trusting anything else for your entry into the kingdom is dangerous. You must trust Jesus only. He longs for you to come to him, to know him, to be sheltered under his wings from the judgment to come. If you've done that, many of you have, spend your life encouraging others to do the same. Spend your life, your, your ordinary little life in this ordinary little church. You little mustard seed. <laughs> you little piece of yeast. <laughs> because that's the way God's kingdom will grow. Slowly but surely, feeding and nurturing people even when we can't see much progress. So may we be a church through which God is transforming his people and his world. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, those graphs, those statistics are sobering, uh, slightly depressing, I guess. Uh, But we thank you for Jesus' words today that your kingdom grows uh, slowly, surely. You grow it. It begins small. Uh, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust the message that you've given us to share. Help us to trust the methods. Uh, And we do pray that you will grow your kingdom and perhaps grow us here at Asheville Presbyterian Church. Uh, For each one here today, Lord, uh, help them, uh, motivate them, encourage them, open their eyes uh, to know what it is that they're trusting in. If it's not you, uh, point them to Jesus, we pray. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.